This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. It was a revelation to spend a few days in Perth last November and watch a human dynamo called Darren McCauley in action. The man they call the voice of WA Racing has boundless talent, amazing versatility and great reserves of energy. I watched him expertly host the Carbine Club luncheon on the Friday with over 500 people in attendance. I listened to his great calls of nine races at Ascot on the Saturday and I noticed him coming in and out of the broadcast box all day long fulfilling miscellaneous commitments. Add to all of this his tab radio work in the days leading up to the railway stakes meeting. What do you think he did on the Sunday morning? Because of the three-hour time difference between Sydney and Perth, he got up at five to join the panel on the Sky Thoroughbred Central program. The kid from Kalgoorlie had a date with destiny from the time he took his first job in racing. He was flag boy at the local meetings, standing by with a flag just in case there was a false start. There were no false starts in Darren McCauley's case. He left the blocks flying and is today firmly entrenched as one of the best in the business. Mr McCauley, how the hell did you ever fit me in? (laughs) Oh, thank you, John. I feel exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) I get, um, I get tired talking sound about like it. like a horrible tornado, but thank you very much for your very, very kind and generous introduction. How do I fit it all in? How have I been able to fit it all in? That's a really good question. I think it's just a deep passion for what I do, mm. and it's never been any different. Uh, right from the word go, John, I, I've always been one of those that hated being indoors. I couldn't stand the notion of working away in offices. I just wanted to be either on a sporting field or a racetrack somewhere, mm. and uh, I'd, I'd just do anything in the world to be able to do that. So I, I like to keep myself active and keep myself ticking over all of the time. Most weeks you cover three or four race meetings, Ascot in the summer months and Belmont in the winter, but what other tracks appear on your roster on a regular basis? Well, certainly most of the provincials, I'm a regular at venues like Bunbury and Pinjarra, of course, uh, which are the near provincial tracks. And then I do shoot up to Geraldton uh, on occasions during their year, which is a a flight up onto the the Midwest coast. And uh, look, I I like getting along to country meetings. I always have, John. Uh, I always find it um, tremendously, I guess, um, enriching to go there and get back to grassroots and talk with the country trainers and those jockeys that normally eat their living out, you know, on the country circuit as well. Uh, it gives you a great insight to how the industry's going. So they're the primary meetings that I do. And then, of course, I'll bob up to Broome, um, which is one of my favourite destinations, mm-hmm. to call a few meetings there uh, and their cup card. It's one of the great country racing carnivals anywhere that you'll ever get to attend and of course going back to my old hometown in Kalgoorlie as well I've been calling the cup back there for years and years had a Mm. bit of a setback last year with a health issue on the day unfortunately I missed calling that cup but um, hopefully I'll be back there again in 2019. On top of your race calling duties you join the panel two days a week on the Tab Radio Breakfast Show. Any open line involved there do you talk to the punters? 
Uh, we do occasionally, but it's normally a program which is hosted by uh, a terrific uh, young guy, Gareth Hall, who you know well. He's mm. been a breath of fresh air since coming over to WA and taking on that program two and a half years ago. He's invigorated it and he's given us old boys, I suppose you could call us, a real lift in energy and enthusiasm. He's, he's sort of dragging us along a little bit there and we, we get to talk with a lot of people involved in racing and the broader sports as well and it's certainly a show that's taken on a whole new lease of life there and largely driven by Gareth, I might add too, and it's a real delight to be able to work with him. He's a talented, funny, humorous, heartwarming guy, so... It, it makes it a bit easier to get up at 4am in the morning, Tappy, and go along and present a sports program for two or three hours a couple of times a week. Well, let's go right back, Darren. You were born and reared in the goldfields, and you were 10 or 11 when you got that flag boys job. I think your dad was a steward at the time, wasn't he, with the Kalgoorlie yeah. Boulder Racing Club? Yeah, he was. He was always uh, around horses, Dad. He's no longer with us. He died uh, very young at 59 uh, with heart disease. Uh, had a few complications in his own life, but he was a very gifted horseman, my father, and I, I tried to ride on his coattails. He was riding a lot of work for local trainers. George Griliusic was one of those who always had a nice team and another uh, good friend of Dad's over the years, Max Andrews, and he didn't live too far away from us, around the back in Burke Street, which was the street behind us. And Dad hated me going anywhere near the horses because he was so fastidious, John, he liked to put himself in a zone and he'd just look at them for ages and he didn't want to be disturbed. But I had this same DNA, I guess, being around them. And um, from a young age of six or seven, it may well have even been younger, I think I was captivated by horse racing. Mm. And uh, I, I'd go down there and just sit in the back lane and watch the horses in these old corrugated stables down the back of Max Andrews's yard or George Grilisic's stable. We'd get on our bicycles and ride from North Cal to South Cal just to do it. So mm. that's where it all started, I suppose, and where my love for horse racing came from. Well, fate stepped in again one day when you picked up a yellow silk cap, a mm. jockey's cap, which had fallen onto the track during the running of a race, and you obviously returned that cap to the jockey's room. I did. Um, I'll just go back to that Burke Street day which is something that I've never really spoken about, the famous Wallace Park race meetings, uh, which were conjured up by a group of kids who all had the same deep passion for racing. Our mothers would make us our own racing colours. <laughs> We'd put in a five or ten cent nom and your bicycle went into the draw. And depending on whose bike you drew, you probably firmed into favouritism or you mm -hmm. drifted alarmingly if you drew my little mini Melvin star. Yeah. So it used to be <laughs> conducted around Collins Street into Parsons Street and the home run was in Burke Street where Max Andrews' stepson, Ron, had a crazy dog called Rex and he would launch from nowhere and try and <laughs> rip your leg off, which made you even go faster. Yeah. And we had sticks that were modified into whips. There was some carnage on the corner of Burke and Parsons with some loose gravel, which claimed a few victims. <laughs> and there was a fair bit of gravel rash too, and Mercurocrate was needed <laughs> yeah. at the ready by some very concerned mothers. Uh, that, that was one of the great things, but the colours that we used to create. Mm. And, and that stayed with me, and that became part of what we do, of course, as broadcasters, identifying those colours. And when I picked up that yellow silk cap that you mentioned, mm. 
I was the flag boy between the ages of seven and ten with the Kalgoorlie Bowler Racing Club, and I never once was able to wave that flag for a false start. So mm-hmm. it was seven bucks for doing nothing, but a good earn, by the way, too, <laughs> back there in the early 70s. <laughs> oh, seven cash was good coin. Yeah. Um, and I, I took the cap back into the jocks room where no one else was allowed other than the race day jockey's room attendant. There'd never been a valet of any description there in those days. And I took the cap back in, snuck through, and I handed it back to the Irish jockey, Tom Graham, who was famously beaten in a Perth Cup on a horse called Kabuki by a nose, led from the 32 to the line and got beaten by the heavily backed allegation owned by the late Rod Evans. And uh, it was a suspicious run in its lead-up, and the crowd went nuts that day. They were throwing cans and wrappers and hot dogs into the mounting yard at the trophy presentation. They didn't cop it sweet. And for poor old Tom, uh, it probably was the difference between going on and becoming a very uh, much uh, identified jockey in the city area to having to ride on the outskirts. So he finished up in Kalgoorlie and uh, he did very well there. And when I retrieved that cap, he instinctively said, can you mount a saddle, which I could do. And he said, can you put that little skid together for me, little lightweight saddle. Mm. And I put it together very quickly for him, grabbed a girth and a surcingle, set of hooks and irons and leathers, mm. put them together, grabbed the, the silks that he was riding in, put the cap on his scully, and uh, away he went. He said, do you want a job, mate? And I, I, I was captivated by that jockey's room, the, the chatter, the, uh, the banter that was going on, um, just the whole mood, the smell of the leather, the old sort of world corrugated iron jocks room that it was with the saddle racks there, uh, all of the saddles, different weighted saddles around that room. And from that moment, I was hooked, line and sinkered. And I, I stayed there and I, I was a valet in the jockey's room from the age of 10 through till about, oh, I guess, 14 or 15 years of age. And Tommy Graham gave me an enormous leg up, I must say, John. Mm. Without him, I, I doubt very much whether I, I would have got as far as I did as quickly as I did. But there were other twists and turns along the way. At age 15, you joined the workforce by joining Australia Post. I did. And around the same time, the local race club were looking for an assistant caller to Milton Cairnduff. And you got the job. I did. Um, Milton had been there for years and years as the local thoroughbred and also harness racing commentator plus broadcasting football. He was a really unique kind of a guy, uh, small in stature, immaculate to a point, and had the most delicate handwriting of any person I could ever remember. He wrote it so finitely in his race book, every little detail, every nuance that occurred on the day. And it was almost like a little work of art. And I think the race club were gifted these books by his uh, wife when he passed away suddenly, had a heart-related disease um, because of his diabetes, and we we lost him way too soon. Um, And and I came along and they were trying to develop me. They knew that I was calling to myself in one of the old ABC boxes down at the old ledger stand about 150 metres from the winning line. Mm. And... I, uh, I was sort of, you know, becoming a bit well-known by the trainers and the locals for, for what I was doing. And so they asked me if I would like to go in as the, the junior broadcaster, maybe call one or potentially two a day and, and just develop the craft behind Milton, who I respected enormously. And it would have been difficult for him to hand over the mic in those days, if I think back. But uh, I always thank him uh, 
really uh, from the bottom of my heart for being able to do that step back, give me a chance and then find the stepping stone to come into the metro area. And you got to some dusty bush tracks during that early grounding. I did. I um, I, I called my first full meeting at the Leonora Race Club, uh, John, um, which is fairly far flung to say the least. <laughs> uh, a lot of humour, but I, I used to hook a ride up there with the stewards. My dad actually was a part-time steward as well. Yeah. Uh, they were all locally employed in those days, the stipendary stewards, and they, they were terrific to me. And I used to hook a ride up there, didn't have a licence at the time, and would go to Leonora and go to Laverton, uh, which was even more remote, and then called the first ever Leinster race meeting out in the middle of nowhere. And um, mm. some very funny occurrences uh, popped up at, at these particular tracks over over the time too, but they were a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's where the heart and soul of racing really is at times. In 1980... Almost four decades ago, mm. 6PR Perth invited you to the Big Smoke and you've been there ever since. Now, what were your duties with 6PR in the formative years? Well, I, I was sort of going nowhere in Cal uh, at that particular time, probably through 1978, 79. I was working for Australia Post. I was playing football. I was fit uh, a bit above myself, John, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> yeah. I was jumping out of my skin. And uh, because we used to have the old push bikes riding them, um, and, and I was gifted the coveted number one round, which we can probably talk a bit about later. But um, I'd called a race there. In fact, I think it was the first broadcast that made it to Perth. It was a feature race. The first time that I'd actually described a race 6PR only took one race, the feature, from Kalgoorlie on the Saturdays when they raced. And there were two leviathans of breakfast radio running the station, um, the legendary John K. Watts and Barry Martin, and they were the kings of breakfast radio here. But 6PR, of course, was also the racing station at the time. And uh, it just happened to be that John was listening in his car uh, on the radio this particular day, driving around with the, his former wife, Dale, and um, uh, history has it, although John claims uh, that he was the one that uh, um, was able to identify some talent, uh, it was Dale that actually pushed him to make the call and say, get that kid from Kalgoorlie to Perth, I think he could make it. So uh, I got a phone call from uh, Rick Rogers, who was in head of sport, and uh, before you know it, I was asked to come down, have a little trial run through the middle of winter and uh, finished up being employed by the station at the end of that year. So, um, yeah, well, I think it was about that year. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it, it was all, you know, very lucky, I guess, the breaks that came my way. And I, I finished up coming to Perth and have been here ever since. You were calling the trots uh, during the career of one mm. of the great horses ever produced in Western Australia, Village Kid who yeah. raced 160 times. He won 93 races. It's hard to get your head around. Oh, he's a freak, John. You've got a very funny story about Village Kid's first start in Australia. He was a New Zealander. He had actually won three small races in New Zealand, mm. but he came here on a very easy mark. He was taken to Pinjarra by Bill Horn, his trainer and part owner, and... Uh, there was another horse in the race that attracted the attention of a colleague of yours. 
Yeah, a well-known colleague too, uh, the former great broadcaster George Grilicic, who many over here would know uh, was an avid punter and had more hard luck tales to tell than any other punter before or after, I would assume. But uh, a leviathan, a gregarious kind of a guy too, and um, oh boy, uh, you wouldn't want to get in the road of the big gorilla when he was having a rough day on the punt. <laughs> we went to Pinjarra this day, Tappy, and... Um, I remember uh, this horse, he, he was probably one of the most athletic-looking standard breads I'd ever seen at the time. He was almost akin to a thoroughbred as a type. You know, he wasn't the normal uh, big buff-headed carty types that were going around because of the breed that they were back in that day. They were still mm. very much in the evolutionary stage, I, I used to think. And he stepped out and he really captured my attention immediately. And I think what had happened was that he had some hoof problems when he got to Australia. They might have got him a bit cheaper than what he would have otherwise been. And a great farrier by the name of Dudley Anderson, Buff Anderson, uh, who was a craftsman there uh, as a, a blacksmith. And he got to work and he got the feet spot on. And uh, Billy Horn, um, who trained him um, with um, the Cox family, of course, as part owners, took him off to Pinjarra. Now, they backed a horse, George had backed a horse by the name of Yank in Paris, trained by Fred Kersley, and it was going around pretty good in that mark that it was uh, racing in. And uh, George had his last on Yank in Paris, of course, and uh, low betide, uh, a thing called Village Kid, first starter from New Zealand, blew it away. And George famously there as he sauntered back to the bookmaker's ring with a durry between his fingers and scuffing the ground and kicking coke cans on his way back there, said, he said, that bloody thing will never win another race, village kid. <laughs> he won another 90. <laughs> yeah, he was just off the mark, George, that day. Oh, gosh, he was a horse. He went on to win the 1986 Inter-Dominion in Brisbane. Yeah. He I won. called that Tappy, yeah. I, I yeah. went up there. It was the Golden Jubilee Inter Dominion. Russ Hins, big Russ, mm. opened up that new that new facility at Albion Park. Uh, there was a man before his time, mm. and uh, he he built this uh, beautiful harness racing venue and had all of the mod cons etc. Back in the time, and oh, I remember it like it was yesterday too. The gala opening, and of course. Uh, Village Kid won that uh, Inner Dominion, and as a parochial proud West Aussie, and I got to call that back home, uh, I don't think I had too many more thrills in my calling career. And, of course, that was also supplemented by the fact that the great mare Line On ran third in the same race, the Bunbury-trained mare mm. uh, with Kimmy Prentice, and she was a beauty as well. So we ran one and three in that Inner Dominion in 86. Mm. Don't know if you've ever heard this statistic, but the greatest testimony that I have ever found for the greatness of Village Kid is the fact that his winning strike rate career was 58.1%. When you consider the level he raced at for most of his career, that is an extraordinary figure. Oh, it's just a phenomenal. I know that we are so enamoured with what, Black Caviar did initially and now what Lynx is still continuing to do. But I think if you look back holistically and you look at what Village Kid produced over such a long period, uh, that was a hallmark of his career too, the longevity, racing against the best Grand Circuit horses in Australasia, uh, meeting them more often than not, beating them, setting records, 
and he continued to race on until I think he must have been either 12 or 13 years of age, you know, Tappy. Mm. And uh, look, the stories that came out about he and Billy Horn are legendary over here. Um, they, they were heartwarming. They were deeply emotional stories. And it was truly one of the great yarns about a man and his horse that you've ever, ever heard. So, and he did a lot for charity as well, um, old village kid. He they sure did. Make a wish and Starlight Foundations and anything to do with raising money for kids. Billy had wheel him out there, and mm. and people just loved him. He was looked after so expertly and so mm. passionately by mm. Bill and his wife. The yeah, village Norma. kid mm. lived to the age of thirty-one. Yeah, yeah, just a, a phenomenon. Um, I, I I doubt whether we'll, we'll probably see too many stories like that in, in the years ahead. Uh, that was one of the unique ones and uh, very fortunate to have been broadcasting at that particular time when he was coming through that era. So, yeah, I look back with enormous and lovely fond memories of a village kid and, and those great navy blue and yellow colours that he carried with AC Lewis in the bike. Now, there's another mm. phenomenon of the sport. Absolutely. Well, back to 1993 in Perth. And your career changed direction dramatically. You were appointed number one gallops caller by 6PR when the station parted company with Stuart Shenton. So the kid from Kalgoorlie had realised a life stream. Yeah, it was an interesting period, Tappy, if I look back upon it now, and it was filled with a fair bit of sadness, actually, for what happened to Stuart, who... Um, got caught up in the clutches of an addiction, uh, as had been pretty much documented at the time. And he had some associated health issues in regards to that. And he'd be missing meetings here and there. And I was in more and more often getting the call up at very late notice to go along and complete my harness racing commitments and also my broadcasting duties in Kalgoorlie. I was doing an enormous amount of work at the time and travelling and then having to back up. And it got to the point where it was either going to be make or break. And I had been doing a little bit of work with the 10 Network, doing a couple of days a week as a general sports reporter. And uh, significantly, on the same day I started there, a very talented young cricketer coming along on the scene by the name of Adam Gilchrist turned up. <laughs> and we were there with Ian Brayshaw and big Timmy Gossage, and we formed a, a pretty useful team of sports uh, reporters back there in the day. And I was becoming more and more interested in doing some television work and uh, finished up reading the sports news on, on weekends uh, more and more regularly as the situation was becoming a bit untenable, quite frankly. And unbeknownst to me, um, there were, um, I, I guess, uh, some investigations going on by um, the Australian Federal Police into into a lot of drug deals, etc., happening at the time. And little did we know that our 6PR cars, which we were allowed to drive and were marked cars, uh, they were actually photographed in a number of the you know, different engagements that were going on between these people. And, and then it uh, broke uh, this particular uh, Friday night. I was calling at Gloucester Park and I received a phone call around about 8.30 to turn up for work to call Ascot the next day. And it was getting into the carnival in, in the November, as I recall. Mm. And I'd becoming really frustrated and I was about to hand my brief in at PR, quite frankly, and accept a job full-time at Channel 10. And this changed dramatically in, in that particular moment. Um, unfortunately for Stuart, he had been arrested by the police um, and uh, he, he lost his position. 
um, and he had to go through over many, many years down the track, uh, a lot of rehabilitation. And I'm pleased to say that I still do see Stewie and, you know, he's going along pretty well these days and I always had a great amount of respect for him and his talent. He was a prodigious talent as a broadcaster and a very, very funny guy. Um, but again, it just shows you the ills of what drugs can do to people. But I'm happy to say that he's alive and ticking over pretty well uh, these days. So, But that was a changing uh, moment there. Um, it was a watershed uh, evening and a day that followed. And, and within the weeks to come, I was asked to take on that role and it eventually developed into a full-time broadcasting position there as the number one's thoroughbred caller, which I'd always hoped aspirationally to be. Yeah, That was my dream and it came through some unfortunate circumstances, but, um, you know, it was uh, Stu's misfortune and my good luck. The sale that has produced the likes of the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Esther Jarb, Russian Revolution, Moss Fun, Pino and Flying Artie in recent years has again attracted a stunning catalogue for 2019. The Australian Easter Yearling Sale catalogue is now available online and its depth and quality is again without peer in the Southern Hemisphere's Yearling Sale season. Among this year's spectacular Easter catalogue of 450 yearlings are 39 siblings to Group 1 winners like the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Sunlight, Lankan Rupee, Brazen Bow, Shulls, Faulkner, Star Spangled Banner, Catchy, Dundeal, I Victory, Lucky Bubbles, Shooting to Win, She Will Reign, Seamus Award and Pino. There is also the progeny of 34 Group 1 winning mares such as Hasna, River Dove, Pear Tart, Our Egyptian Rain, Rostova, Steps in Time, Brazilian Pulse, Provocative, Headway and Dizelle. Super Stallion Schnitzel is the leading sire with 37 entries while the ill-fated Sebring has 33. Fastnet Rock 31, I Am Invincible 31, there are 25 Vancouver's, 22 by Reduce Choice, 21 by Zoo Star, 19 by Medagliadoro, 19 by Pride of Dubai, So You Think has 18 in the catalogue and they round out the top 10. There is, as always, a strong international flavour with yearlings by the likes of Deep Impact, Frankel, Lord Canaloa, Tappet and Harbinger also catalogued. The 2019 Inglis Easter Yearling Sale is just bursting with quality. Look for the catalogue online. Well, in 26 years calling the gallops at Ascot and Belmont, you've seen some wonderful horses and some wonderful horsemen. The Great Northerly won 19 races for 9.3 million, but he only won five in Perth, understandably, including the 2,000 railway stakes with Danny Miller on board, and you would have called that one, obviously. That was six or seven years after you got started. Yeah, I did. I'd called um, bounced straight into the Perth Cups uh, back in Palacious's era, field officer in 93, the first of Bob Peters' many victories in that race and progressed on our way through. And I'd followed Northerly, which was bred in part owned by a good mate of mine, in Nev Duncan down at Oakland Park Stud. And he kept telling me about this horse that he had who probably wasn't, um, you know, the typical big, bold uh, group one horse that you see in the making of others on the East Coast. 
he was a, an unfashionable type. He was by a horse that was a pretty handy sire called Sir Heed. Um, he had um, offset legs. He didn't make the yearling sales. He wasn't good enough to make the cut. Mm. But he had something else that was called an X Factor, and that X Factor was a bloody big heart. Yeah. And an, a mighty will to win, as Greg Miles dubbed him the Fighting Tiger when he really started to make his mark in Melbourne. But we saw him early on, and he uh, he came out, and oh boy, uh, from the Aquanita Stakes at his second career run, backed up into a 1500 it was. And I'd actually had dinner with Neville that night down in in uh, Busselton, um, and um, we were reflecting upon it, not expecting that he would go on to become the great horse that he did, but um, as he continued to go through, and that railway stakes, old Dan Miller uh, rode him, and he, he sat four deep the journey in a group one over a mile, and Ascot, as you know, that race is a testing 1600 for any horse, and he, he eyeballed after being four deep a horse with one over a million from Leon McDonald's yard called Umrum, Mm. with uh, J.A. Cassidy aboard and uh, old dashing Dan in that inimitable pumping style just loomed alongside and said, I'll see you back in the showers, Jimmy boy. <laughs> and that was it. Northerly ran away from them and broke Umrum's heart. Don't know if he ever won another race after that. Yeah. But uh, Northerly went on to absolute greatness and uh, in the Hall of Fame, of course, and now arguably and uh, most likely will always be the most successful thoroughbred ever to come out of this state. Now, Darren, I'm going to pick up the pace here because I've got quite a few points I want to at least touch on. Yeah. The Miss Andretti story was absorbing enough to inspire John Hunt to write his first book, Princess, The Miss Beautiful Andretti book. Story. Beautiful mm. book. Great read. She raced 14 times in Perth. She won 10 races there, including a Group 2 and a Group 3, before going east to fame and fortune. One of the greatest stories of the turf of all time, picked up out of a paddock down at Ray Cochran's stud in the southwest by David Mueller, uh, by Itaram, a horse who hadn't set the world on fire at stud. And uh, what she was able to do was just phenomenal. Teamed up with Kevin Forrester and uh, she just, I don't know what it was about her, uh, what she exuded. Didn't think in our wildest dreams that once she went to Lee Freeman, she'd go on and take on the world the way that she did. But boy, oh boy, if we look back now and we saw those early signs of just how tough and how competitive she was, um, it was hardly surprising. Look, you know, a lot of things have got to fall into place uh, to see horses realise their potential and the Freedmans got the best out of her. It was a great ride for David Mueller, terrific fellow. He did the great job in, I think, creating the foundations for Miss Andretti. The Freedmans really, I think, put the icing on the cake and what a thrill it was for her to go to England and beat the best in the world. There's one race that you regard as your favourite call and the race that left an indelible memory on mm. WA racing fans. Takeover Target had just returned from his third trip to the UK. Apache Cat had already won six Group 1s. It was a promoter's dream. It was the greatest race I'd seen in Perth since Kingston Town came and won the Western Mail Classic in 1982. And back in those days through the golden 70s, when TJ and CS Hayes and JB Cummings and GT Murphy brought their horses across here, they brought the best of the best. And uh, that sort of dropped off after uh, the Turf Club um, probably lost a bit of direction there and racing in WA was going through a very 
very difficult time through the 80s and uh, we had to wait a long, long time. You know, we got northerly and we rode off the back and he lifted the state's racing profile back up uh, from uh, the the bottom of despair, really. Uh, and I don't mind saying that it wasn't a great time and northerly carried the state on his broad back. He um, ignited that. Then we got the chance, of course, to see Takeover Target and Apache Cat come to WA and the stage there that had been set during the week, the build-up was phenomenal. I recall it with the Carbine Club lunch, having Joe Janiak and the opportunity to interview Joe and it was one of the more special interviews I think I've ever had uh, the pleasure of doing and we got a lot out of Joe that hadn't been known previously there on that occasion and it sort of was, I guess, also uh, made much better by the fact that they paraded northerly uh, through the marquee uh, at that particular time. A lot of people forget. And um, I thought there was a moment of greatness. And the following day, we were going to see something, you know, equally so. And that was the clash between these two. Tactically, one of the great races I've ever had to call. The thrill of it, the gripping nature of the photo, the two white blazers going together, not really knowing who was going to get the bob, you know, whether Ford got the best out of Takeover Target, whether Corey got the best out of Apache Cat, and I threw it all on the line and went Takeover Target a nose, and thank God the number went up into the frame uh, and the judge agreed with me because I would have been absolutely looking for a rock to hide under if it had gone the other way. You've always rated Rod Kemp among the best jockeys you've ever seen in WA, a four-time premiership winner, Rod was at the peak of his form when involved in a terrible fall at Belmont in 1987. The injuries that forced his retirement were exacerbated by a blood clot Mm. and he became paralysed down one side. Now, Darren, some years later, the Cal Boulder Racing Club arranged for old Doremus to lead the field out for the Kalgoorlie Cup. You took that idea one step further. Well, Kalgoorlie, of course, is the home of Rod Kemp. And uh, Kempy became, I think, one of the finest jockeys we've ever seen here. Uh, we nicknamed him the Rocket Man. He rode for the, the biggest names in Perth. And in one carnival, he rode every feature race winner, unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, Kempy's in the Hall of Fame here now. At that day at Belmont Park, it was an innocuous tumble of a horse called Cherridge, who raced in the Hyperion Thoroughbred Silks, a midweeker. He clipped heels, he took a tumble and broke his collarbone. And from there, on his way to Royal Perth Hospital for treatment, he suffered a blood clot and a massive stroke. Mm. And as a result of the stroke, Tappy, uh, Kempe um, lost his memory, his ability to speak. Uh, he was uh, disabled completely on his left side, which still impacts upon him today. And basically, his life, had, uh, as we had known it, as the superstar jockey, had come to a crashing halt. It took many, many years of rehabilitation and the love and the care of the racing community to help Rodney back, get onto his feet and make his life worthwhile again. And he used to come along and visit me in the broadcasting box to set up the binoculars every single meeting. And I got to know him even better than I had previously. And uh, we were thinking when the promotional opportunity came up many, many years later um, for Doremus to go to Kalgoorlie, the Melbourne Cup winner, part owned by some Goldfields identities and Rodney Russell, Mm. who had the notion that he'd 
probably, you know, attract a good crowd there by leading them out. And I thought, wouldn't it be great, the dream? I sat 2am, up bolt right, uh, bolt upright, and I, mm. I thought, wouldn't it be great if Rod Kemp could ride him out, not knowing that if he could ever get on the back of a horse again. So we took him, I asked him if he was interested, and he said he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was filled with dread about the journey that we were going on. Mm-hmm. And I finished up taking him to the riding for the disabled. And it was such a fulfilling experience just to be down there with young people with disabilities and not having had the best arts in life. And most humbling, and Kempy got on the back of an old retired race mare. And uh, she wasn't a big mare, thankfully. We got him up onto some steps. And you know, Tappy instinctively, as he got on that horse's back, and he hadn't been on one since the fall, uh, his knees went up immediately. Mm-hmm. His hands took a shorter hold of the rein, and it was almost as though he was back aboard, ready to go out onto the track to race. Yep. And we walked him around the forestry area, came back, and I've never seen a better, broader smile in my life. It was enormously... Mm-hmm satisfying it was you know hugely emotional and um and and from that point we then had the association with the remus we took three months at the riding for the disabled and uh, it was not without its setbacks trying to get him onto the back of the remus let me assure you mm. um up at yarradale study tried to get on a couple of times and the horse threw him to kingdom come and he crashed heavily but he wouldn't give up no. and then lulu chiani stepped in and his apprentices and they desensitised Doremus down in the round yard at his stable in Ascot. We got him to Cal eventually, and there wouldn't have been a dry eye in the house the day that he came out of that swab box into the yard in his silks and led the cup field out onto the track there that particular day. And it it was a a moving moment for me in many respects because that morning I'd scattered my father's ashes at the winning post of the Kalgoorlie Boulder Race Course, so Mm. he acknowledged him as he went past. And that got coverage all over Australia, Darren. It was it had widespread media coverage. It was a one of the most touching moments in the history of the sport. It sure was. There were other wonderful jockeys for whom you had special admiration. Paul Harvey was one. Mark Sestich was another. Yeah. And we are starting to eat into our time a little on the podcast, but every serious punter in this part of Australia will want me to ask you about a bloke called William Pike who has captured the attention of racing fans throughout the nation. And, Darren, I know for a fact there are serious punters in this part of the world who want to do nothing but back horses that William Pike rides. He is a phenomenon, uh, a Coolgardie-born kid just um, west of Kalgoorlie, 50 kilometres west of Cal. An old gold mining town where the first gold strike ever occurred when Bailey and Ford struck their riches mm-hmm. and they unearthed an absolute nugget in, in Pike because he has, I think, transcended the greats and you can throw the Paul Harveys, the Rod Kemps, the Frank Treens, the Tiger Moors, the Reg Trefones, the greats of the saddle in this state. Uh, Pike will stand, uh, I, I think, as a colossus in the saddle uh, when they look back in time and the history books will record that there'll no, there'll never be a more successful jockey that pulled on a set of silks. I don't know what it is. He's, he's got this old-world jockey charm about him. Mm. His style in the saddle, which you saw firsthand here in November, 
He's got his foot in the stirrup, akin to the greats of yesteryear, and he's just got the most beautiful set of hands uh, where he can get a horse to settle and drop the bit, cool off, be put to sleep, wake them up, and just get the best out of them. You know, Mm. he does ride good horses, but he rides less bad races than anyone I've ever seen. And, um, you know, people can argue against the pool of jockeys that he might compete against, but you can only compete and beat what's available there in front of you. Mm. He's a homebody, he's a farmer at heart, and he's a man with a very simple uh, life structure, and he loves it, and he's very kind and generous to the media and everyone that, that wants a piece of pike. Um, I'm a, an enormous rapper, as you can probably tell, for the guy. And, um, you know, he's a great jockey. He's a great family man. He's a, he's a terrific bloke. And special mention of Bob Peters, Darren, one of Australia's biggest breeders and racehorse owners and arguably the most passionate racing man in Australia. Doesn't he love it? You know, Tappy, he'll be inducted into the WA Racing Hall of Fame this week, ironically enough that you mentioned his name, those famous cerise and white colours. Again, from very humble beginnings, he lived in a suburb just down the road from the Belmont Park Racecourse, Rivervale. Uh, He was a, um, I I guess, a horse person at heart right from the beginning because he rode horses everywhere. And as he once told me, he said if he hadn't gone into the car game and become the success that he has been there, he would have been a farmer. And you can tell that by the beautiful property that he has on the outskirts of Perth at Yaleborough, uh, an absolute showpiece. Um, his record will be unsurpassed. He uh, is an astute man that sits and does all of the planning well in advance. Uh, the preparation that goes into his operation is second to none. He doesn't surround himself with many people. Uh, he is uh, by uh, nature a quiet man who um, doesn't like a lot of fuss. He's very frugal with his words, uh, but boy, oh boy, can he breed a horse. And, you know, he's been rated amongst the most successful owner breeders, not only in this country, but in the world. And that's against the conglomerates for his strike rate and group and stakes races. Yeah. Darren, uh, we have to wind the podcast down, which is a pity because I had lots of questions uh, for you to answer. But we'll do it another day, mate. But in the meantime, there has been no better ambassador for WA Racing than Darren McCauley. You've been presenting the product with style and flair and passion for a long, long time. And as I said at that Carbine Club luncheon the other day, they are very lucky to have you as the voice of Western Australian Racing. That's really kind of you, John. Thank you. I, I appreciate that coming from you um, because I've always sort of admired what you've done and, and how you've been able to bring the world of racing there uh, to those that love the sport. And, um, you know, um, I don't mind saying, and I, I said that at the time, you know, you've been a great role model for me and I, I hope in, in some small way uh, have been able to produce a little bit of your magic over here on this side of the country um and you know it's just been an absolute pleasure and an honor actually to have been doing something that is passionate about what we're all about in racing and um you know i'm, I'm very very lucky i uh, they, they say you know that um if you're doing something you love you've never been to work a day in your life and i think that probably is similar to well, what i've been able to enjoy Darren McCauley on our podcast, which has been produced 
by Supernova Sound. The sail that has produced the likes of the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Estajab, Russian Revolution, Mosfun, Pino and Flying Artie in recent years has again attracted a stunning catalogue for 2019. The Australian Easter Yearling Sail catalogue is now available online and its depth and quality is again without peer in the Southern Hemisphere's Yearling Sail season. Among this year's spectacular Easter catalogue of 450 yearlings are 39 siblings to Group 1 winners like the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Sunlight, Lankan Rupee, Brazen Bow, Shulls, Faulkner, Star Spangled Banner, Catchy, Dundeal, I Victory, Lucky Bubbles, Shooting to Win, She Will Reign, Seamus Award and Pino. There is also the progeny of 34 Group 1 winning mares such as Hasna, River Dove, Pear Tart, Our Egyptian Rain, Rostova, Steps in Time, Brazilian Pulse, Provocative, Headway and Dizel. Super Stallion Schnitzel is the leading sire with 37 entries while the ill-fated Sebring has 33. Fastnet Rock 31, I Am Invincible 31, there are 25 Vancouver's, 22 by Reduce Choice, 21 by Zoo Star, 19 by Medagliadoro, 19 by Pride of Dubai, So You Think has 18 in the catalogue and they round out the top 10. There is, as always, a strong international flavour with yearlings by the likes of Deep Impact, Frankel, Lord Canaloa, Tappet and Harbinger also catalogued. The 2019 Inglis Easter Yearling Sale is just bursting with quality. Look for the catalogue online.